You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see everyone this morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor um, at Sojourn Church Carlisle, and we're going to begin, continue in our series in Matthew. Um, So if you don't mind, if you can and you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, looking at verse 1 through 35. If you need to sit down because you have children or just because your legs are a little weak from all that great singing we just just experienced, it's quite okay. Um, I know these are longer verses, but let's stand in honor of God's word as we read it together. Amen. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 1 reads, it says, As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and and called his attention to the buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on top of another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, When these things will happen and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. You are going to hear hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the house, housetop must not come down to get the things out of his house. And a man in the field must, know, must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't, been, hasn't taken place since the beginning of the world until now. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you, see, there is the Messiah over, over here, don't believe them, for many false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell, if so, if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out there. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When the carcass, where the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sky, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one, from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. Everyone wants to know it. Everyone thinks they know it. Everyone has their own opinion about it. 
I even remember calling this lady as a young boy about it. If you can see, a, see that on the screen. If not, that's okay. This, the picture that I wanted to show you was Dionne Warwick, <laughs> the psychic lady, if you remember that from a couple of years ago. We're all enthralled by it. It can either bring much hope or bring much despair. Do you know what it is? Do you know what everyone wants to know? Do you know what everyone has an opinion about? Do you know why I was calling Dion Warwick um, as a, um, do you know I was calling Dion Warwick about as a 10-year-old boy? Well, yes, if you guessed it, um, it is being the future. You are absolutely correct. We, we all want to know and we all have an idea or a perspective of kind of where it's going or where it's tended to go. Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise you and thank you. We love you. We ask, Lord, that as always, you would take my little, make much of it. Pray that you would help us to find our rest and our comfort in the fact that you are near and that, God, your word has been given to us for us to feast this morning. We pray that your word will go forth and not come back void. Some mind will be changed, some soul will be, be set, um, so, excuse me, some soul will be set, uh, saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Um, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Even this week, I just received a text message from one of my former Princeton students. And the text read as fo- reads as follows. It says, hey, James, have you ever heard of this author? And he gives me a little logo. It's The Harbinger Binger by Jonathan Chan. Have you heard about this author or any of his works? I wanted to hear your thoughts on this book if you were familiar. It sounds compelling at first, but I'm also hesitant. I responded to him. I said, no, I haven't heard of it. I said, I would shy away from it because I don't even know if this guy is a Christian. And even if he was, no one knows the exact time of the end, not even Jesus. I said, the word of God is what should guide our hearts and thoughts and emotions as we navigate the end times in the last days, scriptures like Matthew 24 through 25, where Jesus gives explicit instruction on the future, should be the basis of our understanding and hope for the coming days. Find it amazing that all of us are in some way, shape, or form enthralled about the future, and we should be. I was intrigued to consider, man, what, what was my former student compelled by? What, what, what drew his attention to text me out the blue, not talking to him for a couple of months, He texts me this random text about a book that he's considering about the future. What was he texting me me about? He was texting me about knowing the future. He he was texting me about having some type of secret knowledge. He was texting me about knowing something that no one else knows. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul warns his young protege, Timothy, with these prophetic words. He says, for a time will come when they, meaning people, will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. In our text today, Jesus doesn't remind us of something new. He reminds us of something old. In Matthew 24, Jesus graciously reminds us that he is the sovereign king. And because he's the sovereign king, he can be trusted to lead you through times of great trouble and great and cosmic uncertainty. Church family, this is a good reminder for us this morning that God's sovereignty means that he is in control. It doesn't mean that he shares control with many other deities. No, that would be polytheism. It doesn't mean that he fights for control against, uh, against Satan. That would be called dualism. And it doesn't even mean that he's abandoned his control over his creation. That would be called deism. No, the Bible time and time and time again affirms that God is sovereign over all things, especially the future. And since God is sovereign, the future isn't outside of his grasp, nor is it outside of his control. I love how Psalm 16 verse 11 puts it. It says, you reveal the path of life to me. 
In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Do you hear the first words of that, of that sentence, of, of those words from David? You reveal the path of life to me. You know, solid Bible-believing Christians and scholars debate the various details of Matthew 24, including whether or not, whether or not this text supports premillennialism, which simply means Jesus will physically return to earth before his millennial reign, Postmillennialism, which means that Jesus will physically return to earth after the millennium, or amillennialism, which means that there is no millennial reign on earth and it's just all symbolic. In addition to these, there are also constant debates about the rapture. The question, the question still remains, does Matthew 24 supports a, supports a pre-trib tribulation rapture? That means the rapture or the second coming of Jesus coming to gather his church from the earth. Will the rapture come before the great tribulation? Or maybe it's a post-tribulation rapture, meaning that the rapture will happen after the great tribulation. Or maybe it's the mid-tribulation rapture that the rapture will occur during the great tribulation. I let the cat out the bad bag that I actually uphold to the mid-tribulation um, theory and, 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 and understanding of eschatology, but I'm only 39, so give me another couple of 20 years. I may change on that. We'll see. While some scholars deny the reality of a rapture at all, you see, while these are critical questions and conversations that deserve our serious study and attention, Church family, if we are not careful, we will miss what is most important in Matthew 24. So during Church Carlisle, if, if, if we read the text carefully, we'll see a warning for us to consider. And here's that warning. Don't be so concerned with knowing the future that you lose focus upon the, upon the knowledge of the one who holds the future. Let me say that again. Don't be so concerned with knowing the future that you lose focus upon the knowledge of the one who holds the future. Do you remember Jesus' words from last week in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39? He said these words. He says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered our children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But yet you were not willing. See, your house, or another way of saying your house, your temple, is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 24, verses 1 through, three picks, uh, 1 through 2 picks up with saying these words. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to the buildings. He replied, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on one another that will not be thrown down. So what's the significance of this? What, what is Jesus talking about? You see, at this time, the temple was the greatest most incredible architectural wonder in the ancient world. The temple represented many things. One of those things was the, it was a very dwelling place of God. The, the temple represented the center of the universe because literally it was the place where heaven met earth. And it was a place where God met and consoled his people. You see what Jesus hinted at Earlier in Matthew 23, verse 38, he now states explicitly in Matthew 24, verse 2. What is Jesus explicitly saying to his disciples? He is telling them that the temple is coming down. He's telling them and warning them of cataclysmic destruction and its nearness. And listen, for, for, for these these near ancient men, this news would have been both shocking as well as confusing. 
It would have been shocking because the temple, again, was the greatest, most incredible architectural wonder in the ancient world. Listen to how David Platt describes it in his commentary. He says, it was built with large stones, some of which measured 40 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 12 feet deep. These stones could weigh more than 20,000 pounds each, and they were stacked on top of one another. The massive stacked stones led up to a roof bathed in a sea of gold. The white marble on top of the temple would virtually blind you when you looked at it in, its ref- in the reflection of the sun. See, disciples didn't fully understand Jesus, what he was talking about, so they asked him privately about this in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3. It says, while he was sitting on the mountain olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us what, when these things will happen and tell us what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Notice, as our sovereign God, Jesus takes that time to answer their questions about the future. So the disciples ask him two important questions. They say, when will the temple be destroyed? And number two, what would be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answers the first question in verses 4 through 34. He answers the question, when will the temple be destroyed? Through, through this elaborate explanation of verses 4 through 34. And he ends with, the, he ends with that explanation with this, this verse in verse 34. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Well, Jesus, man, how, this generation, what does that mean? How, how long is a generation? Remember with me that a generation is 40 years. And the temple that he's talking about, that Jesus is referencing to, the temple was actually destroyed 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., It's a good reminder for us that Jesus isn't just some wannabe psychic. Jesus isn't just some wannabe psychic trying to get you to call a psychic hotline. Jesus is the cosmic king of the universe. He tells us that, Paul tells us that in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. I think we can say amen after that. Church family, take comfort. Because he's the cosmic king, he can be trusted. Because your God is, because Jesus is, is, is the image of the invisible God, and because he is the firstborn over all creation, because he is before all things and by him all things hold together, he can be trusted to lead you through times of great trouble and even cosmic uncertainty. Notice with me Jesus, how Jesus answers the second question. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? He answers the first question, verses 4 through 34. He answers the second question um, through verse uh, 36 through 44. We'll actually look at that next week, but we'll get a, a precursor of it this week. In Matthew 24, verse 36, he says this, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows... Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, no one knows except the Father alone. So when will Jesus return? When when will Jesus come back? The answer is quite obvious. No one knows. But it will be at a time when you least expect it to happen. Matthew verse 24, verses 37 through 39 says this, For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. This is the same way, or this is the way, the coming of the Son of Man 
will be. Verse 44 continues. It says, this is why you are also to be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice with me, notice, notice with me. We don't know when he's coming back. But notice with me, we do know something. We know that we won't expect his return. If we're not paying attention, we won't expect it. If we're not anticipating anticipating it, we won't expect it. If we're not teaching it to our children and rehearsing this truth in our hearts, we won't expect it. See, Jesus won't, Jesus' return won't be when loads of pastors and YouTube prophets are saying the end is near. <laughs> there are many good and well-intentioned people that have a desire to understand the end times. But if they tell you they know when the end is coming, they're not reading their Bible right. And they've missed the point of Matthew 24. Let me give you. Let me give you the point of Matthew 24. <laughs> the, the, the point of the, all this, it, it gets summarized in one sentence. Here it is. The, the, don't miss the point of Matthew 24. It's not about eschatology and calendars and astrology. Matthew 24 is not just knowing when the world will end, but it's knowing how to choose to follow Jesus, knowing that the world will end. Let me say that again. The point of Matthew 24 is not just knowing when the world will end. The point of Matthew 24 is knowing how you choose to follow Jesus, knowing that the world will end. So what's Jesus' aim? What's his purpose in sharing this information with his disciples? See, Jesus gives his disciples a gift at this moment. He he gently and he graciously pulls back the curtain of the future to help prepare his disciples for what's coming after his death, burial, resurrection, and even ascension. And here's the reality. Here's the reality for us today. Life is going to be very hard and difficult for those who follow Jesus. We see that in verse 15. Look with me in in verse 15, specifically for these disciples. Jesus is telling them that they will experience this, and they have already experienced this. But in his love and compassion for them, he's revealing this ahead of time so so that they might be prepared. Matthew 24, 15 says this. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, So what is this abomination of desolation? (laughs) Is this some kind of mythical beast? Is this another name for the Antichrist? What is he talking about? Jesus, what are you talking about? This phrase, abomination of desolation, is found multiple times within the book of Daniel. And it simply refers to the destruction of the temple. Love how Dan Dorian said in his article and from Together for the Gospel, A couple of years ago, he wrote this. He says, the term abomination appears more than 100 times in the Old Testament and just a few times in the New Testament. An abomination is normally a great sin, commonly worth of death. But more often throughout the Bible, abomination refers to major covenant violations, especially idolatry. And hence, Jesus is warning and preparing his disciples of Rome's impending siege of Jerusalem that will culminate culminate in the destruction of the temple as well as the city. And this has already been recorded in history, specifically in 70 AD. And Jesus not only warns them, but he also gives them specific instructions. Look with me in verses 15 through 21. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. 
For at that time, there will be a great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. See, the historian Josephus records that more than one million people died during that siege and destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in A.D. 70. Notice with me that Jesus is very upfront about what's going to happen. Notice with me that Jesus simply says everything will change. Everything will change for you. The temple will be destroyed. The people will be looking to escape. And the city of Jerusalem will be in complete and utter ruin. But also notice that Jesus is the only consistent thing within the story. Notice that there's no mention of him changing. Notice that there's no mention of him leaving or escaping. Notice that there's no mention of him being destroyed. It's a good reminder for us as a church family that no matter, no matter its beauty or its stature, the things of this world are passing away. The things of this world, regardless of their beauty, regardless of their importance, regardless of their stature, the things of this world are passing away. Isaiah said it best in Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. He says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where your understanding of reality suddenly changes. I was trying to think about that for myself this week as I was writing this sermon and, and God put a couple of dates in my mind. I remember very clearly August 5th, 2006, <laughs> a young whippersnapper of, of a guy trying, trying to be my best to make my vows to my wife in front of my friends and family and love, them, love on her for the rest of my life and commit myself to her before God and family. I remember that day, and I know that from that day on, my, my life has changed. I remember September 11, 2001. I remember being a college football player at Central Michigan University and not being able to get on the internet because something had happened in the world. And I remember my foot football coach at the time, Mike DeBoer, gathering us as players and looking us in the eye and telling us that football is not the most important thing right now. <laughs> There's something much more greater happening in our world and happening in our country that we need to respond to. I remember the birth of my firstborn daughter, March 1st, 2008. I remember holding her in my arms and U of L Hospital, with all the hopes and aspirations of being a father for the first time, as well as all the fears and anxieties that come with it as well. Realizing for the first time in my life that my life would ever change by being called daddy and being called father. It's a good reminder for us that even when things change, and even when things, unexpected things happen, that our God is still in control. It's a good reminder that not to think that a life of faithfulness will be an easy life. Things are going to get very, very hard. Sometimes they may even get brutal. But here's your hope. God is with you. And he's for you. And he will comfort you. I love what Psalm 103 says it in verse 14 through 18. It says this, for he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes it over, it vanishes and his place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithfulness is towards those who fear him. And his righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. 
See, Jesus warns them kindly that life will be hard. Things will get crazy. He, he warns them that it, it might even seem that I've, I've bailed on you. But he also comforts them and reminds them that I haven't abandoned you and I'm also with you forever. I'm looking at some people even now that I, that I know need to hear this word this morning. I'm looking at some people who <laughs> you're going through a rough time or a rough season. Seems like things don't even get better in your life. They only get worse. And I want to let you know that not only does God love you, he sees you, and he's pursuing you. See, Jesus here in this text is challenging the disciples not to allow their circumstances to define his character. He's teaching them. He's teaching them that you you can't look at me and say, I'm good simply because your life is good. That's really not me being good. It means that I'm good because your life is good. And you can't look at your life and say, God is bad because my life is bad. God is the sovereign God and king of the universe. He is the cosmic ruler of all things. And our circumstances cannot define his character. You know what defines God's character? His word. You know what defines God's character? His son. You know what defines God's character? His church. We we are thankful to God that we are able to exemplify and love the God who is the sovereign king over all things. If you are here today and you are hurting, if you're here today and you're dismayed, I want to remind you of a couple of verses that have brought much comfort to my heart, even in my pain and sorrow, even as your pastor. The first verse is this, Psalm 23, 4. It says, even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no evil or I feel no danger. Why, David, do you fear no danger? He says, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I love how Psalm 18 puts it this way. It says, Lord, you light up my lamp. My God illuminates my darkness with you. I can attack a barricade and with my God, I can leap over a wall. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me. For my steps and my ankles do not give way. Love Job 13, 15. You probably heard me say this before, but it's a verse I constantly constantly go back to. He says, though he slays me, yet I will trust him. (laughs) I like that verse a lot. It's a good reminder for us this morning that Christians are not saved from trials. Rather, we're saved through, through trials. Say that again. Christians are not saved from trials. Rather, we're saved through them. Think about that from a biblical perspective. Think about that starting back from the very book of Genesis. Adam's trial was being evicted out of Eden by his creator. (laughs) Yet God gave him grace and clothed him before he sent him away. Noah's trial was building an ark on dry land never seen rain fall from the sky before, having never seen rain fall from the sky before. Abraham's trial was having a promise of a son without having the ability to make it happen within his own self, his own being. Moses' trial was having a vision to liberate his Hebrew people without fully knowing the Hebrew God who gave him the vision for liberation. Daniel's trial was being guilty before men while remaining innocent before God. Israel's trial was living in exile in a foreign land, yet while patiently waiting on God's rescue. Jesus even had his own trial. Jesus' trial was his his temptation in the wilderness, 
yet he was vindicated through his resurrection. And Paul's trial was something that he defined as being a thorn in the flesh. But that thorn led him to know the fullness and the sufficiency of God, even in his, despite his weakness. With such confidence in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can persevere through any trial and tribulation. Listen to what I say. I didn't say that you're going to always be victorious. What I'm saying to you is that we can persevere through any trial and tribulation, looking to Jesus as our hope and as our victory. This is the message of Matthew 24. The message is simple. You can trust in God when all else fails. The future is not a puzzle to be decoded. It's an exhortation to declare. So how should we respond when our world is going crazy and everything seems to be out of control? Jesus is saying, trust in me. He is saying, trust in me. When, when it seems that everything is out of control, I'm still in control. Jesus implores us to, to stay the course. How do we stay the course? Well, Jesus provides three warnings and one promises for us when our world feels like it's going crazy. Look with me in verses four and five. The first warning is this. Do not be deceived. Look at what verses four and five. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. We talked about this last week about deception and how all of us are able to be deceived in one way, shape, or another. Why would Jesus need to say, watch out that no one deceives you? Well, he knows that his disciples will be tempted to go astray, especially during hard and difficult times. It's a good reminder for us as a church that at this point, the disciples' understanding of what lies ahead for Jesus is at best incomplete. And at this point, the disciples' understanding of what lies ahead for them is at best incoherent. They've heard him talk about dying, but but they don't really get it. They heard about him talking about the resurrection, but they don't quite fully understand it. They've heard him talk about the destruction of the temple but they can't fully comprehend it. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus knows what's coming and his instructions are clear. And his his instructions are, do not be deceived. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus knows what's ahead of us, even when we don't. And it's his joy and and it's his pleasure to prepare us for those situations, even when we don't fully understand or comprehend how he's doing it. Let me give you two illustrations that I remember of God reminding me that he was in control. As a young parent, I remember the first time going to McDonald's and taking my baby girl at the time to go play in the the playpen. And I was so excited because it was the first time I remember my mom and dad taking me to McDonald's, giving me chicken nuggets and a milkshake and having me go up in this tube to go play. And I remember taking my daughter, and I'm so excited. And I, I let her go in, and she, she, kept, she, kept, she kept looking back like, is this okay? I'm like, yeah, keep going. Keep going. And then I realized I can't get to her. <laughs> I realized my body's too big. I can't get in there. If something happened, if she got stuck, if she got some kid was being mean to her, I have no control over this situation. And I started to freak out. And I'm like, baby, go, but, but let, just call and let me know you're okay. Just, just tell me. Give me something. Let me know. Daddy. And she, every five minutes, daddy, I'm okay. She's 12 years old now, so I'm not going to embarrass her. But at the time, it was very cute and wonderful. It still is cute and wonderful. It's a good small reminder that God reminded me, even almost 10 years ago, that we can trust God when we're not in control. I remember this summer going to Dollywood. Don't judge me, please. We wore a mask. <laughs> and going there for the first time and uh, never having an experience. I love roller coasters and never really having a chance to do that with my family. And 
My, my son and I, Elliot, my oldest son, we, we, we decided to go on this roller coaster called the Wild Eagle. And I was so excited. And he was like, Dad, let's do it. I'm like, yeah, let's do it, son. Let's go. We, there was like literally no one in line. We literally ran up to the front. We got in, got locked in. I'm all excited. And I look over and I, and I say, I think to myself, ooh, what if he wants to get off right now? <laughs> There's no way we're getting off this ride. And I start freaking out, thinking like, oh my gosh, like I just took my son on this ride, and if it's scary, he's going to be screaming, and I'm going to be looking at him, not enjoying the ride, and I'm freaking out in my mind over losing control of the moment. But we went on that ride, and he loved it, and we rode it like five other times. We even went on this thing called the Tennessee Tornado, which was amazing, and we just had a great day. But even in that, small little reminder The Lord helped me to know that we can trust God even when we're not in control. I remember even going through the the line with him and and, and being in the the roller coaster. And I remember having an opportunity that, wow, I couldn't be in control of the situation. I remember the one thing I could do while we were on that roller coaster was hold his hand (laughs) and give him comfort. I think I was probably giving myself more comfort than I was giving him because he was having a great time. Jesus here is laying out for us practical instructions about deception and how not to be deceived. And we have to be very careful, church, because since its inception, America has loved, we as a country, we've loved to have an enemy. We love having a fight to win, a great enemy to conquer, and a great enemy to confront. And obsessed with the end of the world, evangelicals, I include myself into this, we have looked into the, into the culture and we found an enemy. And we claimed this enemy as evidence that the world was ending and it was time for the church to take up arms against that particular enemy. In the 1920s, Darwinism was seen as being the Antichrist and the theory of evolution was the harbinger of the, of the end. It was the the omen or the foretelling of the end. In the 1930s, our enemy was socialism. In the 1940s, it was the Nazis. In the 1950s, it was the communists. In the 1960s, it was socialists again, aided by their friends, the feminists. In the 1970s, it was homosexuality in integrated schools. In the 1980s, it was the inner inner city crime and the war on drugs. In the 2000s, it was militant Islam. In the 2010s, it was liberalism headed by Obama, President Obama and the Clintons. And even in the 2020, it's Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and so-called cultural Marxism. Now, listen to me very closely. I'm not endorsing any of those people, philosophies, or socio-political movements because I have problems with Black Lives Matter as far as the things that they stand for that, that, are, that are regarding, that disregard, that, that go beyond just the Imago Day and the situation of one as being made in the image of God. I have problems with critical race theory. I have problems with cultural Marxism. I have problems with both the Republican and as well as the Democratic parties. However, I'm pleading with you not to be deceived. I'm pleading with you to see that for 100 years, evangelical Christians have held the mantra, look at this thing, The world is ending, we're doomed, and we have to fight. Let's be real. If the world was about to end this afternoon, many issues become less important. If if Christianity takes on a perpetual wartime mentality, then the ordinary rhythms of our Christian life become secondary at best. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of Jesus Christ to us this morning. Once again, do not be deceived. Soldier in Church Carlisle, pay attention to the voices claiming a new enemy has risen. Pay close attention to the repeating pattern of the evangelical church for the last 100 years and their mantra that this is the end. Here is our enemy. We have to fight. Jesus replied to them again in, in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. First warning is not to be deceived. The second warning is this, verses six and seven, do not be dismayed. He says this, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be families, excuse me, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Notice with me that Jesus implores his disciples not to be dismayed because the world is going to do what it was created, what it was created to do through sin. It's going to produce wars and famines and earthquakes and tsunamis and all types of catastrophes. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, out of your your brokenness, out of your broken world, I'm still able to create beauty. Out of your emptiness, I can still provide substance. And out of your nothingness, I still can provide life. It's a good reminder for us that not to think that all the chaos and conflict, the drama and the trauma means that the end is near. These things are going to continue to happen and the world will feel like it's spinning out of the control. But guess what? It's not. How do you know or how do I know? Because Jesus says in Matthew 24, 8, that all these things are but the beginning of labor pains. Notice with me how Jesus defines labor pains. He doesn't define it as being a mishap. He doesn't define it as a mistake. He doesn't even define it as a misstep. But he defines these problematic problematic things as being birth pains, which are preparing for us a promised future. All the pain, all the turmoil, all the conflict, and all of the crises that we are experiencing are preparing us for something better. All the pain, all the turmoil, all the conflict is hopefully by God's grace is arousing in us a desire for something better, namely the second coming of Jesus. See, when Jesus' second coming, when Jesus comes again and in his second coming, he will cause the world as we know it to end in a rebirth. And as tragedy, as tragedy hits, Jesus is saying, don't be dismayed. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. In other words, what he's saying to us is stay the course. (laughs) Stay the course. So what does it look like practically for us to stay the course? To the older generation, I say this. Don't let those who stray away from Jesus call. Excuse me. Don't let those who stray away from Jesus cause you to despair. I've seen, I know you've seen it time and time again of those who have professed Christ or who have followed Christ and they, for some reason, one reason or another, they, they fall away from Jesus or come out as saying they never was a Christian from the beginning. Don't allow that to lead you to despair. To the younger generation, don't be easily persuaded by every conspiracy theory that's presented to you. To those who are anxious and fearful, Jesus says, don't be dismayed. Life is hard, yes. Our world is crazy, yes. But I'm in control and I'm with you. And I will always be with you even until the end of the age. So number one, don't be deceived. Number two, don't be dismayed. Number three, verses 11 and 13, don't be distracted. He says these words in verses 11 through 13. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness, another word for lawlessness is sin, because Sin or lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying life is going to be extra difficult because you're my disciples. Jesus is saying your devotion means that that you're going to suffer. Some will even die. And if you're like me, I'm like, dang, Jesus, why why are you saying all these hard things? (laughs) Why are you telling the disciples about these hard things that they will endure? Well, He says it in verse 13. He says he wants them to endure. He wants them to make it to the end. Essentially, Jesus wants them to know, as well as us today, that even though the world might feel like it's shaking, don't stray away from my teaching. Don't stray away from my community. 
Don't stay stray away from my instructions. James 1.12 puts it best. It says, blessed is the man or blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to give those who love him. Love Paul, Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.7. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Church family, stay the course. Love God, love your neighbor. Stay the course, share the gospel openly and willingly. Stay the course, serve those in need. Stay the course, continue to be light and salt to a dark world that needs to see the beauty of Jesus in each one of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you for the grace you give us. Thank you for this reminder from Matthew 24 that simply encourages us and reminds us, Lord, of your sovereignty. Thank you, God, that you are the most constant thing and constant person we could ever know. There's no shadow or, or changing with you. There's no shadow, shadow or variance of, of changing you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and we praise you for that. Father, I do pray for those under the sound of my voice even now that as we hear your word, that we not just hear it, but we understand it, and we'll live by it. Help us, Lord. Strengthen our feeble hearts, God. Strengthen our weak knees. We, we need you to be our comfort. We need you to be our strength. We need you to be our God. Draw near to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.